Today's episode is brought to you by the audiobook edition of What Truth Sounds Like, written and narrated by Michael Eric Dyson. What Truth Sounds Like is about a historic meeting between Robert F. Kennedy and James Baldwin that transforms RFK's thinking about race, politics, and the African-American lived experience. Barack Obama stated that, quote, everybody who speaks after Michael Eric Dyson pales in comparison, unquote. So you can start listening now at macmillanaudio.com slash what truth sounds like. And now welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about where we are in the negotiation process with North Korea and how we got here. Clips today come from Citations Needed, Start Making Sense, The Real News, Thinking Cap, and Intercepted. And one quick note that there's been an update to our call to action fighting family separations at the border. There are now marches planned for June 30th. You can get details and find an event near you at familiesbelongtogether.org. There is meaningful gestures of late to actually end the war, which is obviously very tremendous news, very uh, hard-fought news. Can you give us a quick update on what the status of that is and what the reactionary forces are doing to sort of prevent that from happening? So very interesting. You know, just in the last few weeks, we've seen um, just a tidal wave shift, you know, from potential war taking place on the Korean Peninsula, from the U.S. conducting a bloody nose strike, um, you know, launching preventive war, <laughs> to assure that a, a long-range North Korean missile carrying a nuclear warhead couldn't reach the United States. Um, to now, you know, President Trump at a meeting yesterday with Shinzo Abe, the prime minister of Japan, basically declaring that, you know, one day, hopefully soon, Koreans will be able to le- live in peace and uh, and united. I mean, it was just unbelievable to actually listen to President Trump and actually agree with something that he had to say. Um, And so, you know, it's uh, next week on the 27th, um, Moon Jae-in and Kim Jong-un, the North Korean leader and the South Korean president, will be meeting at Panmunjom. It's the site where the armistice agreement was signed. That was um, the ceasefire that North Korea, China, and the United States representing the UN command. South Korea did not sign that ceasefire. basically halting the, the, the war. Um, and they promised within 90 days to return for, um, you know, signing a, a peace accord and that never took place. And so basically 67 years later, uh, you know, the, the Korean war has languished on. And so, um, just in the last few days, uh, South Korea disclosed that, um, they have been discussing how to put, uh, you know, the historic hostilities aside. And I think that was quite a brilliant diplomatic move on the part of the two Koreas. I mean, on the one hand, we hear a lot in the mainstream media that the reason why Kim Jong-un was brought to the table was because of the success of Trump's maximum pressure campaign, which is really basically more sanctions, um, you know, forcing the isolation of North Korea from the international community that that is what brought North Korea. And that is just not the case. The real thing is that uh, North Korea achieved what they felt that they had uh, reached militarily enough power to defend its sovereignty. And also the diplomatic gestures coming from the South Korean president who promised 
North Korea in his first uh, major foreign policy speech in Berlin last year that he would see through a peace treaty um, to end the Korean War if North Korea committed to denuclearization. And, um, you know, but he also sent a very clear message to Washington at, you know, uh, around the same time that uh, North Korea conducted its last missile test, which was there will not be a Korean conflict on the peninsula without the South Korean government's approval, which was, I think, a very symbolic um, message to the Trump administration that, uh, you know, they aren't willing to go along with U.S. designs for a preemptive strike. And so um, I think this gesture, um, the coming together of the two Koreas for the Olympic ceremony that led to the truce, and then now all these kind of already cultural social exchanges Um, My brother-in-law actually led uh, the artist delegation from South Korea to do a major performance in Pyongyang. Um, And so you just see these like extraordinary things taking place by leaps and bounds. And so um, that will take place. And then um, soon after that, sometime in May or possibly in June, Donald Trump is set to meet with Kim Jong-un and we're not sure where the location is and everybody is so fixated on where are they meeting? And, um, but, you know, I think that the critical point is, um, again, back to the media and back to, um, the way that the Korean war is painted in this country is that it is just a civil war between North and South Korea. When in fact, I mean, that has been just something that I have been hammering home for over a decade now, which is it's the United States that must sign a peace, a treaty with the DPRK. And China must also be included because legally, those three are are the signatories to the ceasefire agreement. And South Korea can definitely make overtures. And just as they did in 2000 and in 2007, there have been numerous inter-Korean agreements where they have begun the process of reconciliation towards gradual reunification. But, um, you know, what we saw in the last sunshine era and Moon Jae-in, who's the president now of South Korea, he was the chief of staff to No Mu Hyun, who was the last president, liberal president that oversaw the, the sunshine years. And, you know, he knows well that progress in inter-Korean reconciliation and peace is greatly constrained by the United States. And so that's where I have been kind of you know, when I talk, when I give talks to communities around the U.S., I say, we want so much to prevent there to be a war. But this is our war, people. This is the U.S. led the U.N. command. We led an indiscriminate bombing campaign where more U.S. bombs were dropped on the Korean Peninsula than all of Japan and all of the Asia Pacific theater during World War II. We have to understand that um, the kind of... uh, heinous war crimes that were committed against the Korean people during the Korean War, bombing of dams that completely flooded farms, 80% of North Korean cities incinerated. The only thing standing in some of these cities were chimneys. It felt like to journalists that were walking through there covering this, it, it felt like to them they were walking on the moon. So we have to know this history. We have to bring it back. We have to say the United States military is a signatory to this armistice agreement. And so when we want the Korean War, when we want a peace treaty to be signed, that means 
that is incumbent upon Donald Trump, upon the U.S. government to bring closure to this war. So about that, I see that already the media is going to paint Trump as the victorious uh, diplomatic savior in this story, which obviously is is completely insane. And so I love that you're pointing out that that narrative completely distorts and is the the mirror opposite of reality when it comes to Korea, and that there is this history of cross-cultural work and of diplomacy on the actual Korean peninsula, and that it's the United States that reached a point where they couldn't go further with their threats, and that that has tipped the scale, not this kind of magnanimous overture by a guy who basically is just going to say the last thing that someone else just said to him, and who has time and again painted North Korea and its leadership and its people as these dehumanized caricatures. So, you know, what happens for the media narrative? How does the media narrative get it right in this case? Or... Um, does it not matter that they do as long as the people of North Korea will not be under siege and under threat anymore? I know. Well, I mean, I, it's so amazing to me how how much the media just doesn't get the Korean situation at all. You know, and part of it has to do with the South Korean government and Moon Jae-in's masterful diplomacy. I mean, frankly, I mean, he knows what a narcissistic psychopath. Uh, I mean, I don't know that he knows that, but I mean, they clearly know and have studied very closely Donald Trump. And, you know, they have made um, statements such that it is because of Donald Trump and the U.S.'s maximum pressure campaign. And, you know, they have known all the like gracious ways to frame things so that he feels, um, you know, that (laughs) this is... Yeah, you know, I mean, it's like it's like everybody's managing somebody that is, a, you know, really like injured person right, um, right. and unwell person. You and, could just kind of pat him on the head and be like, exactly. yep, you did this and then actually go about your business of like making peace. Right. Absolutely. So I think in, in that sense, Moon Jae-in has been very masterful. Um, but the reality is, I mean, you know, the backstory in which we, of course, will never get this right in the mainstream media, in the corporate military media, military industrial complexes, you know, why, why, why did this shift take place? And I would say for sure, this like the threat of a U.S. preventive, uh, preventive war, quote unquote, preventive war, whatever that is, illegal preemptive strike uh, against North Korea would um, had so much freaked out the North and the South Koreans that, uh, you know, I mean, the Congressional Research Service says that what in the opening days of a conventional military conflict, 300,000 people would be killed, right? Because if you think you're going to go and do these like um, precision strikes on North Korea, where they have hidden, they have it on mobile sites. I mean, you know, they have the experience of surviving an indiscriminate U.S. bombing campaign, do you think, and they have witnessed what has happened to Libya, what has happened to Iraq, do you think that, uh, you know, I mean, we think we have another thing coming um, in terms of thinking that it would be a stealth um, mission. And so there would be a counter strike. There's 87 U.S. bases. There are 30,000 U.S. troops in South Korea. Um, There would be a counter retaliation. So South Korea has seen very clearly, I mean, we saw the whole situation with um, that guy, Victor Cha, who was a hawk. And he, even he couldn't be confirmed by the Trump administration because he wouldn't endorse their bloody nose strategy. So 
we see that the Trump administration pushed so hard, McMaster, um, you know, the crazies in the Trump administration pushed so hard that it basically brought the two Koreas together. And I think that this like recent gesture that they were going to resolve the conflict, you know, diplomatically, that they were going to help bring an end has basically taken away um, the raison d'etre for the Mm -hmm. U.S. to say, we are going to go and do this. You know, if negotiations with Pyongyang don't go well, then we have to go to plan B. Well, South Korea is basically taking away that that um, that reason, that justification. So I think that's a brilliant move. Um, And and so, yeah, here we are. It's a new day. And, um, you know. But we are still dealing. You're absolutely right. I mean, when I saw your first question, you know, the image that came to mind was the New Yorker um, cartoon cover um, of uh, of Kim Jong Un as a little toddler playing with all these like nuclear weapons, right. like mm-hmm. in a you know. And I just think um, you know brings me back to a famous quote by a guy named Donald McIntyre, who actually used to be the sole bureau chief of Time magazine. And he, and he basically said, yeah, these characterizations, like caricatures of North Korean leaders, I mean, especially Kim Jong-il, Kim Jong-un's father, I mean, you know, the way that they are portrayed, that they're unpredictable, that they're, you know, it's all these kind of like jingoistic, mm-hmm. uh, orientalistic, you know, can't be trusted, um, you know, these characterizations and, you know, you, you either get that or you get the kind of goose stepping, marching North Korean soldiers, or you get the images of emaciated North Korean children. So mm-hmm. all you get is this image of North Korea is like a militaristic, like crazy, hellbent, you know, basket case, hellbent on destroying the world. And, you know, that is just, uh, you know, what does that do? That just, number one, it just... Um, justifies U.S. policy, which is actually responsible for creating those characterizations, why North Korea is so militaristic, why they are so uh, persistent on defending their sovereignty through the pursuit of nuclear weapons, why they um, endured a famine in the 1990s because of brutal sanctions, because um, after um, massive, you know, climate disaster they weren't able to even obtain um, funds just as any other capitalist country could from the IMF or the World Bank to bail them out in their, um, you know, predicament. And so I just feel like, you know, it just normalizes the kind of aggressive U.S. policy against North Korea. And it also just like paves the road in the event that we are ready to drop bombs on the North Korean people. Bruce Cummings, welcome back. Thank you, John. Well, we know what Donald Trump wants out of the Korean talks. He wants the Nobel Peace Prize, so he's pretty motivated to get some kind of deal. According to some commentators, for example, Nicholas Kristof at the New York Times, Trump made a huge concession, the suspension of military exercises with South Korea, 
On top of the, the summit meeting itself, unprecedented in the last 75 years, and, and the legitimacy the summit gives Kim, Kristoff says that within North Korea, the very special bond that Trump says he formed with Kim will be portrayed this way. Kim forced the American president through his successful nuclear and missile tests to accept North Korea as a nuclear equal, to provide security guarantees to North Korea, and to cancel war games with South Korea that the North has protested for decades. In exchange for these confessions, Trump seems to have won astonishingly little, Kristoff argues. In their joint statement, Kim merely reaffirmed the same commitment to denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula that North Korea has made repeatedly since 1992. I wonder if you agree with that reading of the joint statement. No, I, I don't uh, agree with it. Uh, the U.S. has refused to talk to North Korean leaders literally since 1945, more specifically since February 1946, when Kim Il-sung came to effective power as the head of an interim people's committee that uh, the American occupation commander in the South uh, refused to recognize. And we've refused to deal with North Korea ever since. I don't believe that in any sense Trump accepted Kim as an equal who comes from a nuclear weapons state. I'm sure North Korea would like to trumpet that at home if they can. Uh, But the point of this uh, first meeting was to begin a process in which they would no longer be a nuclear weapons state. Uh, As for canceling the military exercises, the U.S. did that back in 1994. Bill Clinton did that as a concession to the North. South Korea is one of the only countries in the world where the U.S. can get away with gigantic military exercises with tens of thousands of troops, both Korean and American. And in that sense, I think the Pentagon probably won't be too happy to not uh, be able to do these games. But it's a a small concession. What I thought was interesting was that uh, Trump said these were provocative games. no, No president has ever said that before. But he's right. I mean, he, in his own madness, uh, he sort of brings innocent eyes to the Korean situation. He doesn't know much about it. He doesn't know the history. But if you look at the games, they uh, game out how to decapitate the North Korean regime, for example, uh, how to overthrow it by sending the Marines into the port of Wonsan and uh, marching across the peninsula to take down the government. They also have uh, simulated nuclear drills. Uh, President Obama, during one of these games, sent B-52s to drop dummy nuclear weapons on South Korean islands. Wow. But these are, are very threatening to North Korea. They always have been. But I've never heard of a president who would uh, say they're provocative. The curious thing about this is Trump's utter lack of experience and his lack of any ties to the Washington foreign policy establishment. I mean, people like Nicholas Kristof, who will have a laundry list 89 miles long before North Korea will uh, uh, be recognized. I think, you know, those two things, his basic uh, innocence regarding our long history with North Korea and his lack of ties to uh, the Beltway folks, gives him a, a certain freedom to do something like this. Trump, before the meeting, said, quote, they have to denuke. And Secretary of State Mike Pompeo adds 
that it has to be, quote, complete, verifiable, and irreversible, close quote. What does North Korea want in exchange? Well, they want a peace treaty to end the Korean War, which I think is quite doable and something uh, Trump seems to want. I, I think he senses he might get a Nobel Prize out of that. Uh, I don't think that, but he, probably he does. Cessation of the uh, war games, which he's already gotten, and normalization of relations with the U.S., which would probably have to come in the context of a peace treaty because you really can't make a peace treaty with a country uh, that you don't uh, recognize. Uh, and I, I think, fourth, uh, they want a lot of aid. And Trump several times mentioned that the war games were so, so expensive. Well, so is our presence in South Korea with 28,000 troops, 50,000 more in Japan, the 3rd Marine Division in Okinawa, particularly uh, the, the Marines. Uh, they're not defending Japan. They're oriented toward uh, fighting if a war were to break out on the Korean Peninsula. And that whole entourage of forces costs tens of billions of dollars a year to uh, maintain I saw one estimate that when, when you sort of factor in all the things that we use to deter North Korea or to prepare for fighting North Korea, it might be as high as $40 billion a year. Wow. So North Korea is probably looking for something like a billion or two billion a year in aid in return for giving up their nukes and their missiles, which is essentially what they uh, nearly got back in 2000 from uh, Bill Clinton. I imagine that's what they're thinking about. And it, it's a drop in the bucket. It's a small price to pay to denuclearize North Korea. But, I mean, it, it, the whole business of denuclearization is is a misnomer because they want us to withdraw our nuclear forces from the region, uh, B-52s, B-1 bombers from Guam, uh, Trident submarines, uh, all of that has to presumably be reoriented away from the Korean Peninsula. Uh, but we have bombers that can lift off in the Midwest and bomb North Korea, turn around and come home without landing. Mm. So we will never be able to fully satisfy North Korea short of giving up all of our nuclear weapons. Uh, I think we've already achieved something that some of the best experts uh, in, in the U.S. have called for for years, and that is a moratorium on testing missiles and testing atomic bombs. Uh, and they've done that, in effect, uh, since uh, last November. We haven't talked about South Korea yet, but South Korean President Moon is the one who really took the initiative in getting this whole thing going. What does South Korea want? Well, South Korea wants uh, peace on the Korean Peninsula. It wants to replace the armistice with a, uh, a peace treaty. Uh, it wants to draw down its own immense uh, defense expenditures. It has a 650,000-person army. Uh, but above all, it wants to avoid war. President Moon has said there will be no war on the Korean Peninsula. But the way Trump uh, was talking uh, and Kim Jong-un talking back uh, last fall when Trump threatened to totally destroy North Korea, it was really touch and go. Uh, right up to December when um, they wanted to appoint Victor Cha as ambassador to South Korea. And Victor quit uh, because he thought Trump was moving in the direction of a preemptive strike, a so-called bloody nose for North Korea. So I think South Korea and the president of South Korea have been very deft at moving things off of a, a, a military alternative and toward a diplomatic path.
Is Kim thinking about the Chinese model of a one-party state and a very aggressive uh, economic development? Well, according to South Korean experts that I know, uh, he does want to be the Deng Xiaoping of North Korea uh-huh. in that Deng made these fundamental reforms that were irreversible in 1979, uh, pushing China to join the world economy and uh, really follow Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan in an export-led development model with uh, heavy uh, involvement of the state. And, of course, they've done very well, uh, growing by double digits for most of the last uh, 30 years or more. Uh, And I think that's exactly what uh, the North Koreans are hoping to do. They haven't done it before because they've been uh, so worried about their security. And if they open up in a context where you have someone like John Bolton in Washington wanting to overthrow them, uh, which I'm sure he still does, uh, it's just very dangerous. But I think the reason they have kept calling for security guarantees is is so they can feel secure in opening up. And I would think simply because of the size of the countries that probably Vietnam is a better model for North Korea than China, but you, with Vietnam and China, you have two states that have grown very rapidly using market principles while uh, having heavy state involvement and ultimate power in the hands of the Communist Party. Uh, so I think that model is very influential in North Korea. If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. You know, basically the one company online. Lots of evil tendencies, owned by the richest dude in the world, that one. Chances are you shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases, I know some of you do. Or maybe you have a standard selection of home goods you get delivered regularly. In any case, you might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to. But if you do end up using the site, at least you can help siphon off some of that corporate blood money to help support the production of this show. Your shopping experience will be identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. You can get the affiliate link from the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you can find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. You can bookmark the link so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think. I promise it does. And the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time. Let me ask you, though, about what you make then of the hawkish uh, pushback that Trump is getting from the right. And that right, in this case, uh, this week at least, includes Democrats in terms of uh, them being upset at the prospect of withdrawing U.S. troops from Korea. And let me actually play a clip. Uh, This is a a sample, uh, a good sample of the sort of liberal discourse that's been going on on MSNBC. And it comes from uh, a former NATO commander, James Stavridis. And he explained what he saw as the real reasons uh, for U.S. the U.S. troop presence in South Korea. We ought to remember our troops are there not as an act of goodwill to South Korea. They're there to enhance U.S. influence in the region, to ensure that we keep those sea lanes of communication open, that our trade 
can flow freely, that we have a voice in the events there for the exact same reason that we still have about 50,000 troops in Europe. Um, they're not there as an act of goodwill. They're there to accomplish U.S. national security objectives. So we draw them down at risk to those objectives, and it is very short-sighted to say, oh, yeah, this will be a twofer. We can reduce tension and save some money mm. by getting our troops off the peninsula. Not the right way to think about this one. That's former NATO commander James Stavridis speaking to MSNBC. And I should clarify, that wasn't actually a great sample of liberal opinion because he actually was honest there, Paul. He's saying that we're not there in South Korea for goodwill. Uh, we're there so we can have influence and have a voice and keep uh, sea lanes open for uh, our own goods. So I'm wondering uh, your, your thoughts on what he's saying there and, and the overall reaction of uh, liberal hawks when it comes to the prospect of reducing the U.S. military presence in South Korea? Well, first of all, I agree with you. I think what he said is, is, a, is a more or less honest appraisal of why troops are actually in South Korea and, and Europe, for that matter. It is for the geopolitical strategic objectives of traditional U.S. foreign policy and how they see that Brzezinskian chessboard playing out. And, of course, in South Korea, it's all about China. Uh, and so, you know, to have so many troops so near China is not something Pentagon and traditional foreign policy people are at all interested in. I think there's something specific happening here. And one, well, let me just say on the question of the base, uh, U.S. troops in South Korea, so far it's just a, a propaganda event. Trump lies 50 times a day. Um, he, he sees these kinds of pronouncements as just tactical moves in, in terms of uh, how he communicates his whims of the day, although not to say they don't have a, a bigger plan, which again I say is Iran. But it doesn't mean anything uh, that he can make a promise that someday they'll take these troops out. It's, it's dangling something uh, as the great negotiator. But there is something going on that's a little specific about Trump. They are so focused on the issue of a, of a war against uh, Islam, although they uh, they call Islamic terrorism or extremism, it's truthfully not at all a war against Islam, really. Because if it was, you couldn't they couldn't be so allied with Saudi Arabia. Uh, it's really, again, as I say, about Iran. They can't do not want a major regional power that isn't under American control. So every every time you want to talk about anything to do with foreign policy. You got to work your way back from what does this mean in terms of Iran and what does it mean in terms of China? And that includes the, the, the Trump strategy towards Russia. The traditional foreign policy uh, establishment wants to maintain this new Cold War with Russia because it serves the arms industry to have an existential threat. You, you, you don't need a dozen uh, multi-billion dollar Ford class aircraft carriers to fight ISIS. You need a big power threat. Um, you, you can't have these kind of military budgets without without a Russia. And then later at some point, China, so far, the, the, the narrative from, from the foreign policy establishment is more focused, focused on Russia because the economic intermingling with China is just so complicated that they can't raise the level of tension with China uh, to the level they require. So this is what's kind of interesting about Trump is Trump wants to lower tensions with Russia partly because he was involved with Tillerson and Exxon in a big energy play they want to do in Russia. They want to reopen. Putin was ready to kind of reopen 
uh, Russian oil fields and kind of uh, he wants to get back into the G8, Putin. They wanted the uh, uh, sanctions lower, lifted. And Trump was willing to, to play with Putin on this because his target is Iran and China. So lower tensions with Russia get focused on your strategic, strategic objective. Um, this does not play well with the, uh, as I, the traditional foreign policy establishment, the neocons who are very linked to the arms industry. And then the Democrats, many of whom themselves are up to their eyeballs with the arms industry themselves. And they see partisan advantage because there's such so many decades of Cold War anti-Russian rhetoric. They can play that card to see if they can wound Trump electorally. Uh, this is why I think you see Rachel Maddow going on and on and on about Russia Gate and Russia this and Russia that. Because, well, first of all, it's a ratings win. Look at how MSNBC is doing. You know, Fox throws red meat to their base and now MSNBC is throwing meat, red meat to people that hate Trump. Paul, 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 speaking of which, let me play for you a clip from Rachel Maddow just last night uh, connecting the North Korea issue to Russia. Russia has just this tiny little border. 11-mile-long border with North Korea, with one crossing on a train. And they've got a troubled and varied history over the decades with that country. But Russia is also increasingly straining at its borders right now and shoving back U.S. and Western influence, especially U.S. and Western military presence, anywhere near what it considers to be its own geopolitical interests. And one of the things that they have started to loudly insist on is that the U.S., drop those joint military exercises with South Korea. The U.S. has kept those going as a pillar of U.S. national security strategy for, oh, 70 years now. Until last night, when Trump casually announced that that's over now, he's doing away with those, blindsided everybody involved, and gave North Korea something they desperately want and would do almost anything for, except he gave it to them for free. How come? Paul, so there you go. You have uh, the top liberal uh, cable news hosts not just lamenting the possible end of uh, U.S. military exercises on the Korean Peninsula, which he says have been going on for 70 years since, by the way, the U.S. basically <laughs> destroyed most of North Korea, but then also putting the blame for that development by Trump on Russia. I, I hadn't seen that clip. And it's it's honestly it's astounding to me. I I, I have seen how Rachel Maddow has who, who will say anything to try to get on this anti Russia bandwagon, but to go so far as to call this massive troop uh, buildup a pillar of national in South Korea a pillar of national security. How does this defend the borders of America to have thousands of troops extending American power into Asia? That's not national security. That's empire. That's trying to control the world. That's trying to have your influence to, to try to dominate Asia and not allow China, which is, a, again, a regional power, not a global power. But the United States doesn't even want obvious regional powers to emerge. And she calls that national security? Why? South Korea, North Korea is, is a threat to the United States? I mean, it's ridiculous. Even the intercontinental ballistic missiles are obviously there for defensive purposes, at the very least for negotiating, at the most for negotiating purposes. I mean, to throw a few missiles America's way. I mean, what's the answer? It's the end of North Korea. 
I mean, it's ridiculous to consider it a threat. So what is the real threat? What, China? This is, this is the thinking of neoconservatives. It's the thinking of the project for New American Century. Rachel Maddow, this Rachel Maddow, would be at home in the Cheney-Bush administration. But it's all about partisan advantage. Because, oh, she'll critique Bush-Cheney over the Iraq war. Actually, I don't know where she was in the build-up to the Iraq war. I actually don't know what side of it she was on. But, no, but, she opposed it. She, she opposed it back then. But yeah, that's, so just, that's what it, I guess. It speaks yeah. to the yeah. But, it, but it speaks just, to where we are now. Yeah, it's just partisan advantage. It's ratings, and it's horrible because it's uh, it's it's getting people's eye off the real threats. Which is you know, look at what Trump said when he went to the CIA just a few weeks after he's inaugurated. He goes to the CIA, makes a public speech, and we have it on the Real News. We did it more than once. We've we've reported on this. And he says to the CIA, which at time he had some conflict with, he's, this is his kiss and make up uh, meeting. He says, he says, you guys, number one, are going to be able to, quote, fight without restraint. That means don't worry about killing civilians. And two, he says, I'm, I'm quoting almost verbatim. I always said we should have grabbed the oil in Iraq and ha ha, he laughs. I think you guys are going to have a second chance. So the, the, the idea of destabilizing, stabilizing, weakening Iran, perhaps even going after the oil in Iraq, which is the, uh, the, the greatest source of light crude in the world right now that isn't being f- exploited anywhere near to the extent it could be. The, the reshaping of the Middle East, the, the regime changes they want. I mean, this is where what you gotta be looking at. We can't get, you know, what is a con man? A con man is a magician. Which is, look over here, look over here, look over here, because over here is where the real thing's happening. And everyone's either playing along with this Trump game, or even worse, what Rachel Maddow and, 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 and with, a, with a kind of liberal mask is, is actually pushing a John Bolton kind of uh, hawkishness about Russia. Kelly, let me just get your reaction to the uh, uh, to the events as they unfolded on television, cable news covering minute by minute as motorcades made their way to that resort. And then as the two men entered and shook hands, commentary of how historic this was uh, as someone who's worked on these issues for for so long. What were your takeaways? Well, it certainly was a spectacle. <laughs> um, I think it, it gave Donald Trump exactly what he wanted, which was a lot of media coverage. Uh, gave Kim Jong-un a lot of what he wanted, which was status uh, as a power on par with the United States. Uh, So in that sense, you know, the two leaders achieved what they both wanted to achieve. I think in terms of what it delivered for the American people and our national security interests, I think there are a lot of open questions. I mean, I think it's a good thing that they've started a diplomatic process. We all want diplomacy to succeed here. But from what I have seen so far and what they agreed on is, is basically a pretty vague statement um, without a lot of like, details about how North Korea is going to denuclearize, lots of open questions about 
you know, the way forward on the negotiations. And I, you know, personally think there was a lot of like, where's the beef <laughs> uh, when it comes to the actual agreement? It's very similar to, you know, previous agreements uh, in the 90s and the 2000s. So we've been here before. We've seen this movie. And the challenge with the North Koreans is that they always cheat. They don't follow through. And so I'm very concerned that, you know, there's not going to be a real follow through on the on the negotiations from the North Korean side. But we'll see. I mean, they started a process and we'll see where it goes. But. Well, let's talk about the deal or at least what we know about the deal, uh, the president promised to suspend joint military exercises and in return, North Korea said that it will start dismantling the nuclear arsenal. Kelly, was that a big concession by the president saying that he will suspend joint military exercises? And then what does dismantling the nuclear arsenal actually mean? Is there a definition and understanding of how far North Korea is expected to go? Well, actually, let me start at the top, which is denuclearization. I think that there is still a lack of clarity about what was actually agreed to between the two parties on the path to denuclearization. It was very vague language in the declaration. Uh, it was it basically said, well, work, you know, North Korea pledges to work towards denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. Well, that can mean a lot of different things. Uh, and so it's going to be really important to, to clarify and to ensure that the United States and North Korea are operating on the same definition of denuclearization. Because if they aren't operating on that definition, then going forward in negotiation is going to be very hard. What are some of the different definitions it could have? Well, so when we when we talk about denuclearization, we often use the term complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization, or known as CDID. That's been a U.S. policy position for quite some time. And what that means is something, you know, we go in, we, inspe- you know, basically do a lay down of inspections. We take apart all of the facilities that both create the fissile materials, so plutonium, uranium, all of the testing facilities and research facilities would be taken down. Uh, inspections would, would be put in place. So that's what we talk about in terms of, of denuclearization, basically getting rid of nuclear weapons <laughs> on the peninsula. When the North Koreans talk about it, they say denuclearization of the Korean peninsula. Now, to the average ear, that doesn't mean much. But to them, what they mean is they want us to stop uh, with, you know, putting troops on the peninsula, uh, stop extending a nuclear umbrella to our allies. Like So they they incorporate our nuclear capabilities as well. So you have these two different mismatches of definitions, which if we don't have clarity around what we're actually working towards in diplomacy, it's going to lead to a potential disastrous outcome. And it's not clear from this meeting which definition. And it's and it was not clear in the document. It was like a one page, one and a half page document. It had only four points. Uh, It's not dissimilar from some of the documents previously. In fact, it's actually even a little bit less detailed uh, than prior agreements. So on this particular point. So I'm a little worried watching that space because if we don't have that clarity up front, it's going to be disastrous. Mike, let me ask you about North Korea uh, and their pledge to start dismantling the nuclear arsenal. They came into this agreement uh, by at least publicly uh, making a concession of destroying a nuclear test site uh, that they invited all these journalists to. Uh, Is there any sign that North Korea is taking these negotiations more seriously, or at least is more serious about meeting the goal in 2018 than they had been in the past. I see no evidence to date that North Korea is more serious now than it has been in the past about giving up its nuclear weapons or its nuclear capabilities. And in fact, one can argue that they 
likely have much less of an incentive to do so now. Uh, at the end of 2017, the beginning of 2018, Kim Jong-un announced basically that his nuclear and missile programs had been completed, uh, that he had what he believed was a strong nuclear deterrent uh, that could attack the United States if need be and defend uh, North Korea, um, and that he was now ready to focus on the other aspect of his uh, agenda domestically, which is economic growth. Um, and so, again, I think that... This uh, outcome here today uh, is potentially disturbing because we did not get the North Koreans to actually give up anything concrete. The only thing so far the North Koreans have done so far this year that I think was positive in this uh, realm is freeze its testing of uh, nuclear weapons and missiles. Uh, that's been ongoing for months now. That's a very good thing. Um, hopefully that can give diplomacy room to maneuver uh, and to make progress in the coming months. But other than that, the destruction of the uh, test site and other things are all, for the most part, temporary things that can easily be uh, reversed. Kelly, what do you see as the dangers of going into this negotiation without having the kind of verification uh, procedures in place to ensure that North Korea is actually serious about uh, going through with their side of the bargain as the United States appears to be, as you point out, uh, making very serious and very real concessions? Yeah, we have a, a phrase called uh, don't trust but verify. And in this case, you know, we have a lot of trust in this agreement and lot, not a lot of verification. And verification is really important for a couple of reasons. Number one is it makes sure everybody's on the same page with what is actually happening on the ground with the program to make sure that they're dismantling the program appropriately with IAEA standards, etc. So those things are very important. Otherwise, we're just going off of our intelligence and going off of what the North Koreans are, say they are doing. But really, verification is essential for us to have full confidence that denuclearization is actually occurring on the ground. Joining me now to discuss the Trump-Kim Summit is Christine Hong. She is Associate Professor at UC Santa Cruz and an Executive Board Member of the Korea Policy Institute. Christine, welcome to Intercepted. Thank you. First, just your reaction. What is the significance of not only this meeting, but the document that they signed? You know, I mean, a lot of people are saying in the media that this document is really flimsy. But I have to say that this is historically momentous. Never before has a sitting U.S. president had a meeting with the North Korean head of state. And so even in terms of the symbolism of it all, it's hugely important. But the other thing that happened was that Donald Trump actually made some pretty serious structural concessions. And so this is just to back up a little bit. In the lead up to the summit, North Korea took a number of good faith measures. Not only did North Korea release three Korean Americans who were imprisoned in North Korea for committing hostile acts, but also it destroyed its nuclear testing site in Pungiri. It effectively placed a moratorium on all of its nuclear testing. 
I'm here at North Korea's nuclear test site at Pungeiri, a place that foreign journalists have never been allowed before. And we are here, the North Korean government says, to witness the destruction of this site. They say it will never be able to be used again. And so we should realize that throughout the Barack Obama presidency, North Korea put forth a measure which has been wrongly attributed in the mainstream media to China and Russia of a freeze for a freeze proposal. And it proposed to the United States during the Obama administration that if the United States suspended its large scale war games with its ally South Korea, that North Korea was willing to suspend its nuclear testing. And we have to understand what these war exercises are. Chuck Hagel, under Barack Obama, who claimed that these war exercises were just business as usual. And these war exercises, which are staged annually, they're the largest in the world. They simulate the invasion and occupation of North Korea. They um, simulate a nuclear first strike against North Korea. And they also practice the decapitation of North Korea's leadership. And we cannot imagine the United States being fine with Cuba and Russia conducting these kinds of war exercises off the United States coast. And historically, North Korea has said these are incredibly provocative. They're just a hair's breadth away from the actual prosecution of war. The United States has poo-pooed these kinds of claims. All of a sudden, we see Donald Trump in a kind of tit-for-tat measure, meeting good-faith measure with good-faith measure, indicating that he's willing to suspend these um, war games, and he actually called them provocative. When I was watching Kim Jong-un act somewhat deferential to Donald Trump and then talking to Korean friends, uh, what I learned was that what Kim Jong-un was doing is actually the culturally appropriate manner to behave with someone who is older than you. And I was so impressed by Kim Jong-un's statement when he sat down with Trump and was speaking, where he said, It has not been easy to come to this point. For us, the past has been holding us back, and old practices and prejudices have been covering our eyes and ears, but we've been able to overcome everything to arrive here today. If that was an accurate translation of what he said, that is more articulate than any sentence Trump has ever uttered probably in his life. I mean, you're absolutely right. There is a kind of respect for one's elders that is part and parcel of Korean culture, whether you're from the North or the South. And you could say that when Kim Jong-un met with Moon Jae-in, the president of South Korea, you could see similar sort of patterns and, you know, a kind of behavior of respect toward one's elder. You know, when Kim Jong-un was speaking, he was speaking as the head of a society that has only known one policy uh, from the United States, and that has been an unceasing policy of regime change. And we have to recall that, you know, he's sitting across from the person who threatened just last year to rain down fire and fury like the world has never seen before on North Korea. They will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. Who stood before the United Nations, you know, stated that he was willing to totally destroy North Korea. Of course, you know, human rights experts who were there in in the audience understood this to be a crucial statement of intention, which is essential for understanding the legal definition of genocide. And so they're sitting across from someone who didn't seem to have 
any historical awareness who actually had the prerogative and the privilege of amnesia with regard to what the United States actually did to North Korea in the middle part of the 20th century, which is to say that the United States, which commanded control of the skies over the Korean peninsula, rained down fire and fury like the world had never seen before on North Korea. And of course, as as you well know, Christine, at the time of the what is called the Korean War, there were a half a dozen to 16 or 17 cities that had been established in what is now North Korea, and all of them were entirely obliterated by the United States. The U.S. was by far the greatest aggressor in that war. Seventy percent of uh, North Koreans killed in that war were civilians. And as I watched the media coverage in the United States, you would think that the opposite was true. You would think that it is North Korea that has been threatening regime change, that it was North Korea that had committed massive war crimes against the United States. And there were war crimes committed against U.S. personnel. But my God, who were who was the greatest victim of that war? Ordinary North Koreans. Who was the great aggressor of that war? The United States. Absolutely. I mean, you bring up a number of really critical points. You know, I mean, the fact of the matter is that North Korea, to borrow a phrase from Arundhati Roy, is a country that was sculpted from the spare rib of America's aggressive foreign policy. And we have to recall, like, you know, you're saying like 70% of the Koreans who were killed north or south during that, uh, the hot fighting period of what we call the Korean War were civilians, as you said. And with regard to North Korea, the estimates are staggering. I mean, there was nothing left to bomb. That's what the bombers actually stated. Civilian infrastructure was totally taken out. That's against the laws of war. Um, and, you know, on Pyongyang alone, that was a city that only had 400,000 occupants at that time. The United States unleashed over 420,000 bombs on that city. That's more than one per person. That's the very definition of overkill. This is what the historian Bruce Cummings calls a bombing holocaust. You cannot go to North Korea and meet anyone whose family wasn't personally impacted by the aggressive war violence of the Korean War, that uh, at the Nuremberg trials and also in the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, the crime of crimes held above genocide, held above crimes against humanity, is aggressive war or war against the peace. This is a kind of crime that powers that are historically imperialist, including the United States, these wars of intervention are almost always crimes against the peace, but there is a culture of impunity about them. We've just heard clips today, starting with citations needed explaining how we found ourselves in a new day with hope for peace in North Korea. Start Making Sense spoke with Bruce Cummings about Trump's meeting and the prospect for peace. The Real News spoke with Paul Jay about the liberals now in a partisan panic over Trump's meeting. Thinking Cap dove into a few of the nuances of the negotiation with North Korea. And finally, we just heard Intercepted speaking with Christine Hong about some of the historical context that has led so many to see this as an important and positive 
positive moment. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. So, hi, Jay. It's uh, Nick from California. I just uh, broke into tears uh, on my uh, Senator Kamala Harris's uh, Kamala Harris's uh, voicemail. Uh, and then I thought to call you next. This is an activist call to action to any of our listeners, uh, to any of your listeners, rather, to, uh, to, to call their Congress people, call the United Nations, call anybody who will listen and say that this, this thing with the, the children being sent to mass, uh, being sent to camps and it needs to stop. I mean, it's not just being separated from their families, which is bad and heinous enough, but just, you know, the pictures of that. I, I'm a father of a three-year-old, and uh, I just the idea that not only would my child be taken from me, which would be horrible enough, but then be sent to this mass facility with those face blankets and those chain-link fences. My, my, you know, it doesn't matter any year old. It doesn't matter. The fact that we're doing this on U.S. soil, our tax money here. I mean, we've done terrible, horrible things in my lifetime, this government, but... I don't know. This just moves me in such a way. I can't finish that episode. I've been trying for days. I just, it really, it really hurts. And um, I just want everybody who listens to the show to do what they can to try to stop this because it's horrifying. It's just absolutely heart-wrenching. And anybody who tries to justify it, I just, I, 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 I people are arguing over whether it was Obama or Clinton who, who or whatever. Paul, who cares? None of that matters. We're locking up children in chain link fences and three-year-olds crying for their mamas. Horrifying. This needs to stop. So please, if you're hearing this message, do something. Call your members of Congress. Call the United Nations. Call whatever. We've got to stop this. It's really hard. All right. Thanks, Jay. Keep up the good work. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, uh, the message that we just heard from Nick, I think, is one of the very few appropriate ways to respond uh, to the situation. You know, anything from sadness to anger to determination to disgust, you know, anything in that genre is, is going to be an appropriate response. As I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, there's been an update to the activism that we put out. We were directing people to familiesbelongtogether.org, and they had general information, ways to contact uh, Congress, that sort of thing. Uh, now, marches are being set for June 30th, so obviously... Check them out, find the event in your neighborhood, and get there. Um, but this whole conversation uh, reminds me of voicemail. Some of you are going to remember this message. We got it a few months ago. And uh, I, I, I find myself often thinking of Sam from Nashville uh, because of one very particular thing he said. Hi, my name is Sam, and I live in Nashville, Tennessee. I am a Trump voter, and I love the show. As a Trump voter, I do find myself feeling misunderstood and misrepresented quite often. Uh, one thing I really want you and your team to know is that if Trump becomes tyrannical in any way or 
um, moves to form a dictatorship or commits any human rights atrocities, both myself and, and the many Trump voting friends that I have would be right there with you leading the charge against him. And obviously he said more than that, but, but that promise to stand up against uh, movements toward dictatorship or human rights abuses makes me think of Sam fairly often because I, I always think, at what point, at, at what level of human rights abuses are the Trump supporters going to stand up? And, and I, I want to reiterate something that, you know, was brought up in the show about uh, immigrants and family separation. It, it's the dehumanizing of them. That's what really sticks out. You know, Trump uses words like animals. Uh, he says he was only talking about uh, the gang members, but he was obviously talking about immigrants in general while talking about gang members to help blur those lines. He definitely used the word breed, not when talking about gang members. That was just talking about immigrants in general. Uh, Jeff Sessions used a word like stampede. Others have used words like pick of the litter, um, infestation, that sort of thing. It fits in very nicely with other uh, governments that have made the point to dehumanize segments of the population. Uh, Nazis referred to Jews as vermin. Uh, the Rwandan genocide, people were calling each other cockroaches, that sort of thing. So, so the point is, you know, we know this playbook. And the Trump administration, presumably, unless you want to argue that they are completely ignorant, also know this playbook. So they have to be doing it on purpose. You, you could argue that they're complete fucking morons, but otherwise, they're doing it on purpose. So for people like Sam, you know, the way you stand up to human rights abuses like this and authoritarianism and, and tendencies towards dictatorship is not to wait until you can confirm 100%, okay, now they have turned into a dictatorship or now they have announced that they are going to put together a dictatorship. It's by doing what Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor called on us to do about 12 years ago when she started seeing signs of authoritarian tendencies in the Bush administration. You know, she didn't scream fascism right then. It was what wouldn't have been appropriate to. But she explained that, quote, it takes a lot of degeneration before a country falls into dictatorship, but we should avoid these ends by avoiding these beginnings, unquote. So the question is, at what point will Trump supporters like Sam, who claim to be willing to stand up against human rights abuses and dictatorships, realize that they are supporting the kind of degeneration that leads to exactly what they say they oppose? You know, I don't think it makes sense to call Trump a dictator right now. He obviously isn't. But it is equally obvious that he would love to be. And it's completely irresponsible to think of someone in power with authoritarian aspirations as someone that you can just wait and see about, you know? The playbook is out there. Anyone can read it. Sowing distrust in facts and any critical media, undermining institutions with any power to oppose them, such as the FBI or the courts, dehumanizing any group that can be used to rally people against out of fear as a means of consolidating power. Like, everything Trump does seems random and chaotic, and he's just going based on his own whim, which is probably true to a certain extent. But when you zoom out far enough, everything begins to look like he's following a tightly written script, and we know how that play ends. So any thinking person of conscience needs to be able to see this and not get caught in a debate over whether he's like the Nazis for what he's doing right now. As far as I know, 
I don't think he's currently ordering anyone be thrown in ovens, but that's not the point. To focus on only the end is to miss the point entirely. We must avoid these ends by avoiding these beginnings. Otherwise, it would be too late. So if you have any thoughts on this, especially if you're conservative or a Trump supporter who sees themselves as a defender of freedom and opposing human rights abuses and dictatorships, uh, I would love to hear from you. As always, you can call in at 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com